Welcome to the Dietitian Connection podcast, a show about nutrition, dietitians, and their success stories. Through our conversations with nutrition leaders, we aim to inspire you, to connect you with like-minded colleagues, to innovate and push you out of your comfort zone, to create robust debate, to encourage lifelong learning, and to empower you to create more impact as a dietitian. I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land where you're listening to this. I'm recording from the land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and I pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Welcome to our Dietitian Connection podcast. My name's Jane Winter from Dietitian Connection, and I'm an accredited practicing dietitian. And just a note that this podcast is not and is not intended to be medical advice, which should obviously be tailored to individual circumstances. The podcast is for information only, and we do advise that you exercise your own judgment before deciding to use the information provided. And medical advice should be obtained before taking any action. Today, we're going to be looking at the topic of blended or blenderized tube feeding as it's becoming sort of more mainstream, I think. And to talk us through the topic of blended tube feeds, we're joined today by advanced accredited practicing dietitian, Lena Brake, who's a friend of our podcast and webinars in actual fact, a dietitian connection. And Lena is doing her PhD on home enteral feeding um, in adult population. And she's doing that through Monash University. And she also is the founder of a um, private practice called Tube Dietitian. Um, is that right, Lena? Have I got it, the name right? Yep. Yep. That's um, exactly right. And specialises in, in supporting um, people that are living in their homes uh, with a tube, which I think um, in years gone by has been very much overlooked uh, in in the world of enteral feeding and, and people have required to be attached to hospitals basically for support. So this is a big step forward. So um, welcome, Lena. We're really pleased to have you. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to talk about this. So your your practice um, really focuses on managing tube feeding at home for your clients. Can you sort of just give us a bit of a summary of what sort of challenges that you see those clients facing in their home? Yes, absolutely. So I'll probably narrow the challenges down to maybe four. Um, and and there's, there's a lot, but I've kind of categorized them into four. So number one, there's so many logistical challenges. So what I mean by that is, as you mentioned, the systems around us in Australia, like NDIS, TAC, private health insurance companies, they're yet to get on board with tube feeding um, being something that actually costs a lot of money and people who are home tube fed need that financial support. Um, so those sort of logistical insurance issues are a big challenge. Some people, two people with the same condition, two people with the same tube are getting completely different insurance supports, right? And, and that's still the living problem that we've got. Other logistical issues like product supply and ordering, where yet formula companies and equipment companies do a brilliant job in connecting with hospitals um, to link them to their, you know, a flow chart of how to order from them. In terms of in the community, we're a little bit left in the dark. So I think it's, it's getting better, but that's definitely a logistical problem. 
Number two, advocacy. Um, I often hear people that I look, look after with feeding tubes at home saying, how do I advocate for myself through XYZ insurance company to get what I need? They really need that challenge of self-advocacy is really, really takes a toll on them. And us as clinicians, we need to be prepared to write those advocacy letters to support them, um, to do some costing and quoting. Um, but yes, advocacy is a real issue. The other two challenges that I've seen through um, my patients' experiences, emotional is a big one. So life is not the same. I think one of my clients literally, and this is a quote, she said, when I got a feeding tube, it was a mixture of grief, relief, fear and hope and, and and it just i'm getting goosebumps just saying it but this is it's 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 grief for the life that you used to have and now there's this there's this medical device you've got to carry around with you it's relief that okay i'll be getting my nourishment and whilst i can't eat because i've had my esophagus resected from cancer or whatever it is i've got relief of nourishment and fear and hope and and the fear that they often express is fear around what the hell do i do when my tube falls out at 8 p.m on a sunday mm. and that sort of emotional stress and the fourth one is social social challenges as you can yeah you know this jane what everything in our life revolves around food um, every single social gathering has got cheese and crackers and and you know yeah, lots and lots of food around. So when you're fully dependent on a feeding tube, there's that awkwardness of, do I really go to that cocktail party um, when I've got to do a bolus feed in the toilet um, mm. while everybody else is having cheese and crackers on a platter? So uh, it's, yeah, it's and, a challenge. And even the, the people around them. So as a person who's not involved directly with a um, family member with a tube or anything, your first default when someone walks in your door is to offer them something to eat or drink. I mean, Absolutely. so even just calling around to someone's house is usually Absolutely. got a food focus, yeah, so you can absolutely understand. Yeah, and you know what's really cool? Something, what I love most about the fact that we just do look after people with feeding tubes is I get so many ideas from one patient to communicate mm. to the other. Because, what, for example, one patient said, when I add um, a particular food flavouring color food coloring to my blended tube feeds it looks so much prettier and and it just feels so much better yeah, yeah. <laughs> and there's like little ideas like that that you can only come up with once you're in it you're living it and breathing it so mm. yeah and blenderized tube feeding now if i think back to when i was um practicing as a dietitian which is well the first part was many years ago and actually at that time nursing homes wouldn't accept people with tubes in them. So we actually had to get vitamized tubes through a gastrostomy to yeah. allow them to go to a nursing home. So that, of course, all yeah. changed completely. <laughs> um, yeah. And then blenderized tube feeds were really on the out and out. Like that was very mm. fringe. Um, it really wasn't accepted at all by um, healthcare professionals yeah. that that was a very dangerous, fraught kind of thing that you would want to do. But I think from what I read now and what I see, it's it's gaining a lot of momentum, understandably, that um, people with tubes want to look at blenderized feeds. So can you tell us when we see blenderized feeds in a publication or in some kind of communication what that usually means? Oh, gosh, very good question. But, Jane, as I'm looking through all the literature for my PhD, 
and the, often the problem with a lot of nutrition research is there's no set definition. Mm. So on paper, we'll put pineapple juice with egg whites and coconut milk and tell you that's blenderized tube feeding. And then another research article will put half a steak blended through with rice and some, you know, cooked salmon or whatever, and they'll tell you that's blenderized. So there's actually no, the, the, the research, unfortunately, we're not in agreement as to what blended food is. Um, but in general, any food that you cook with the intention to consume through your mouth, but you put it through a tube, that's technically blenderized yep. tube feeding. Yeah. Um, so, however, yeah, in, in practice, the definition's not standardized. So, so good luck with your systematic review when every paper has a different definition. Exactly. Exactly. And from your, from your <laughs> clients that you see, have you seen a shift um, towards blenderized tube feeding in terms of interest from them? What has been the attitudes from your clients? You know what? I've I've had a gentleman with newly diagnosed cancer that just simply wanted a vegan vegan whole food down his tube. I've got a 26-year-old gentleman with an intellectual disability that loves to cook and just wants to do blended tube feeding once a week, not every day. Um, there's a 65-year-old gentleman with progressive MND, motor neuron disease, and he's been on blended tube feeding for years and that's what he wants to do for the rest of his life. Um, it varies. Some people want to do it in its entirety and some people just want it on a Sunday night with everybody else's dinner at the table. Um, so I, I, I only got into the blender tube feeding space when I started my private practice tube dietitian three years ago. I opened tube dietitian with the intention to support people with home feeding tubes who might not be eligible for hospital services. But then I very, very quickly stepped into lots received lots of queries around well I want this and, and my hospital won't support it will you help me put food down my tube so I was kind of cornered into um mm. delving into the world of BTF and and I love it and what I've and because I work in the adult population most of my clients want to do it out of choice um out of whether it's personal or social I know that in the pediatric population it can come about from an allergy perspective and intolerances perspective. Um, and from my PhD, I can see that research done in the Philippines and Brazil and, and other sort of third world countries, they're doing BTF because it's cheaper. Mm, yeah. Um, so, so the reasons are so varied. Um, but yeah, from my personal experience, it's mainly around personal beliefs and social, yeah, yeah. social well-being. And mm. um, I, there was a, a doctor in um Melbourne some years ago that uh, was uh, going through a cancer journey. I think it was esophageal and so had a, a yep. gastrostomy and he was a, really an expert in nutrition and his great concern was that he was missing out on all sort of the phytonutrients, yep. the peripheral things that he knew that food provided that weren't just your macronutrients or your micronutrients. And so I was yeah, very absolutely. keen to at least get a partial contribution from fresh food yeah. um, down his yeah. tube. So the, the if we talk about the sort of myths about blenderized tube feeding, what are some of the common myths that you come across? And I guess this might be from patient and professional perspective. Yeah, yeah. Look, I know the, the, the myths can probably be summarised into mainly three. So food contamination, so food hygiene issues, tube blockages and nutritional inadequacy. And if, and honestly, when you drill those three down, they apply to conventional formula as well. 
they stem from people, why they're linked to blended tube fittings, because they stem from blended tube fitting traditionally not being supported by a healthcare professional. So yes, if you do blended tube feeding and you're not washing your hands, yes, mm. it's going to put you at increased food contamination. Um, tube blockages, because blended tube feeding has varying vos- viscosity based on how you add liquid, um, how much liquid you add, whereas formula made in a factory is made to the exact same consistency. So it's not BTF that's causing the b- tube blockage, it's the way you're making yes. it. Um, in terms of nutritional adequacy, again, traditionally, dietitians, we don't get involved. I mean, a, a cross-sectional study we did at OSPIN published in 2021, and I can link you to the paper that we published, found that 40% of people in Australia New Zealand are using BTF in a, as a component of their home mental nutrition. And out of those 40, 30 get discharged from dietetics the moment they find out there. So, so we we are traditionally not supporting these people. So of course they're going to have a nutritionally inadequate blend. So the, the myths that are coming out, it's really important to remember that, that they are not um, founded from research. They are founded, they stem from a problem of we have not been tra- supporting people who, who would like to try BTF. We have not been supporting them properly and giving them the right information. My literature, my systematic literature review through my PhD, I'm answering this exact question. Does blended tube feeding compared to conventional formula cause these issues for adults on home mental nutrition? Um, we're almost at the end now and we'll be hopefully writing it up soon and publishing it hopefully this year. Um, but I'm, what I'm really seeing just in general is the research is, the studies are teeny tiny numbers. The formulas of blended tube feeding, the nutritional composition, your, some one paper is comparing 0.4 kcals per mil to a one cal per mil conventional formula. Another paper is comparing 54 grams of protein and BTF to 100 grams in conventional. Yeah. So, so the, the literature is so flawed. The research yeah. is so flawed at this stage. One particular study was comparing BTF with conventional in two weeks and looking at nutritional status. What's two weeks going to do <laughs> for, for, for nutritional? So, so we're finding, I'm finding lots of issues in the core foundations of running research with BTF. So it's very important to remember these myths, they exist if your clients are not educated properly and they exist for both conventional and blended, right? And, and these myths are not evidence that is stemming from evidence. They're stemming from lack of healthcare professional support. So what I guess you're saying from that is that we shouldn't be afraid of BTF. We should be much more active in helping clients manage it appropriately. Absolutely. So the first thing, I I, I was so scared of BTF when I started tube dietitian three years ago. And, you know, the first thing I did, Jane, was I contacted a dietitian in Canada called Claire Karaya. Her website's Natural Tube Feeding. And I found her through a random Google search of, I need a dietitian who knows this stuff. Mm. And I said to her, can you support me and mentor me while I'm getting started in this area? Because I'm scared. Yeah. Um, I did her online course. Um, which she actually developed for patients, but it's really useful for a clinician starting out in BTF to do. Um, and it definitely took the fear away when it when I thought, yes, we are the experts of food and we are the experts of tube feeding. So why can't we be <laughs> both? Yeah, yeah. You know, why can't we be experts of both? 
Um, and if you're afraid, you're going to miss out. The, the, the ship is sailing. As I said, more than 40% we found in our 2021 cross-sectional study, more than 40% are, on, are using BTF as a component. So the so, patients that you have um, at Tube Dietitian and they're interested or they're doing BTF, do you find that they broach the subject with you or they just start on their own and give it a go and then kind of timidly tell you about it or how do they tell you or how do they embark on it? Yeah, so what I'll, I'll give you an example. One gentleman, the 65-year-old with progressive MND that's been doing BTF for years, he he got the idea from American clinicians and webinars that he's attended. He's very switched on, brilliant gentleman. I He referred himself to me to say he lives in Australia and the nursing supports that he has re- are refusing to administer the feed because it's food and right. they, don't, they don't think that they should be putting food down to. So they'll only agree to do it if his regimen has been signed off by a dietitian that it's safe to do. So he contacted me. It was pretty much not looking for you to change my recipes. I've been doing this for years. (laughs) I'm just looking for support so that the nurses can help me. Um, So that's that's one example. Another gentleman, the one that loves cooking, he's a 26-year-old and his mum's, you know, she's she's trying to get him up and going with independence and, and he loves cooking. So he started cooking classes and he wants to try what he's cooking. So it was a matter of, oh, I don't really want to do it every day because I don't have time to cook every day, but Mm. at least that for my cooking class. Um, For my patients that never bring it up to me, so those that have just left hospital, Jane, I actually give them the option. So I would often say in my initial consults, I would say, so this is how I can help. I can change your regimen from a pump to a bolus if you're going out hiking. I can also change your feed um, from this company to that company based on your bowel habits. Yes. But we can also change to homemade food if that's what you want. Um, so there's all these options. So every problem should have a solution. And that's what yeah. I'm here for, to troubleshoot with you. So I do give them the option. Yeah, yeah, which may or may not be something they've already considered, I guess. I mean, some of them might be the first yeah. time they've ever thought about it or heard about it. Exactly. And there are those cases and, and that's oh. fine. And some of them tell me, no, nah, I've, you know, it took me a while in hospital to get on a formula yeah. that I can actually tolerate. And, and now I'm kind of happy with this and I just want to stay. And I'm like, great. That's yeah. fine. Yeah. You can imagine that there's a lot of, um, burden of self care on a lot of these patients. And it may yes. be that, um, blenderizing a formula for their tubes is just something they don't want to be bothered with if they can have One an alternative. Yeah, one of the studies in, that um, will be included in my um, systematic literature review actually had 20 participants and only nine completed the, the blender tube feeding six-week trial and some of the dropouts were time-consuming. Yeah. Uh, yeah, too burdensome. So, so yes, that issue does exist and so it's important to be upfront with someone and say, look, you, you need the freezer space if you want to be <laughs> efficient yes. on a Sunday yeah. and for the week. Yeah. Um, yeah, or you've got to have the space to do it every day. So how yeah. how do they go about starting a recipe for a tube feed mm. if they're doing it from home? When they, if someone tells me I want to try blended tube feeding, I say, all right, one of three options. We either have try ready-made recipes or blend whatever everybody else is having or we blend by food group. So those are the three options. Some people go, oh, let me try blending what everybody else is having mm. um, for a week and let me, let's me let see how I go. Um, 
And then it's just a matter of adding a little bit more liquid to, to thin the blend. Some people say, I want ready-made recipes that have been tested and tried. Um, and I'm going to reference Claire again, because on her website, Natural Tube Feeding, she's published 20 recipes. Her book costs, I think, 40 Australian dollars. I bought her book and it's got recipes that she's tested and tried. Um, 20. Each recipe is about 20 grams of protein. So they're super nourishing. Yep. Um, and I, I often go, I want you to buy this book and try the recipes yep. and let's alter them based on what you want. Um, or by food group. And that's where we go, okay, each blend needs to consist of um, a carb, a protein, liquid, um, a fat. So for example, half a cup of rice, half a cup of chicken, two tablespoons of olive oil, and then your liquid there can be a bit of cream and maybe some chicken broth. And, and you know, and there, there's your there's your blend. Um, the liquids is the where, where the tricky part comes because it's really important to add the liquid gradually to get the right, to, to get to the consistency that you want. Yeah. People often just or the whole cup um, and then the blend's too thin and then you're playing this annoying juggling act. So mm. it's really important to add the, the liquid gradually from, from the experience that I hear from my clients. And do you um, actually do a nutritional analysis or do you just kind of do it based on monitoring weight and those sorts of things? Like, Do you actually try and analyse what they're putting down the tube? No. No, I don't. And that was a question. And that was a question I asked Claire when I first started out. I said to her, so how do you monitor their nutrition? And she said, the way you would if they're eating through their mouth. She must have thought Aussie dietitians are crazy, (laughs) but she was very nice about it. She was like, you just, you know, if they're medically stable, um, if, if I've got a client that's drastically losing weight, you know, uh, yeah, whether they're on conventional or BTF, that should be a flag that there's something massively wrong. Um, so she said to me, yeah, you would do what you do if they're eating this food orally. So again, weight, um, pathology, um, clinical signs of micronutrient deficiency, like hair loss, yes. dry corners of the mouth, clubbing nails. All of these are pretty, like they're clinical signs that can pop up within three to five months of starting something. Um, Bowels, bowel habits, Mm. they're an immediate feedback tool. It's great. Um, So this, yeah, I do not have the time and nor do my clients (laughs) ask for a full FoodWorks nutritional analysis. If someone did, I could easily do it. But majority of people just want it for food, not for, Mm. they don't want to medicalize it. Um, They just want it for that humanity. And do you consider Um, it as as part of um, scope of practice as dietitians um, managing BTF? Look, as I mentioned, food is our scope of practice. Tube feeding is our scope of practice. So why would putting putting them together not be our scope of practice? practice. The BDA, the British Dietetic Association, supports it with all their heart. The American Society of Parental Nutrition, the Australasian Society of Parental and Enteral Nutrition has just released a series of some brilliant resources um, on blender tube feeding. So it's it's definitely within our scope of practice. And, and we need to now, it's time to take ownership of this space because the research is shocking because dietitians haven't been leading yeah. it. And 
And the problems that wing arise are because the dietitians are not supporting it. Yeah. Um, people, yeah, people are left to kind of fend for themselves and use the internet or whatever. And it's, yeah, it's causing issues. And have you developed uh, resources or information, you know, in terms of giving your clients information about starting or doing it safely? What do you yeah. provide them with in terms of education? Yeah, so I've got about a three-page word, word document, which sort of, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty and attractive, but it sort of <laughs> answers the question of, you know, what kind of kitchen equipment do I need? How, what do I include in a blend? How do, what, what are food hygiene practices? Um, but I've actually summarized that three-page um, document, which I normally give patients into an infographic. You know, I love my infographics. Um, and that's pretty much got about six questions that I have experienced of asked questions um, of me around blended tube feeding. And that's got all the information. How do I store it? How do I clean, clean up? What do I include in a blend? So, yeah, so I tend to give that sort of information. Um, Is that really, all on your website? Sorry. Yes. So yes, I, I've got the infographic. It's okay. part of my newsletter pump. Um, and you'll also find it on my website, tubedietitian.com. So right. um, absolutely. Uh, and in terms of, you, know, you talked about some of the schemes, insurance schemes that your clients might be under. And I guess NDIS is one of those, just as an example. But um, do you provide training to the care workers or the support workers um, about around BTF if it's needed? So good question because in a in a with with commercial formula when carers need training I often call on the nursing service attached to that formula company. Yeah. When a client's on BTF there isn't that mm. company that can provide. So yes it does end up being me. Um in a case where someone lives in a care home recipes that are ready, tested and tried are often the best way to go. I would never say to a care home, just blitz whatever the other um, people are having in the facility. It would be very, I would be creating very specific recipes like to the tea, you know, three tablespoons of this, a cup of this. I'd be being very, very specific. Whereas if somebody lives at home and has their wife caring for them, that's where we can blitz whatever your wife's having or, or be a bit more lenient. But yes, when it comes to a care home with NDIS support coordinators, um, they're just after that formality of a regimen that's written on a header and a footer kind of form, dietitian number, dietitian contact, a date, date for when you're going to review the formula, um, and exact sort of step-by-step -step instructions on how to make it. Um, my client who is under the NDIS, who lives in a care home, his mum actually makes it and then brings it to the facility. Right. Um, so, yeah, there's often ways around where you can work with the person's um, family and carers to kind of simplify the process. Um, and do they need um, particular equipment? You talk about blitzing up the food, but um, are there, you know, do they need a particular type of food processor or yeah. whatever? Nutri Bullet does perfectly yep. fine, but yep. yeah, any kind of food processor. I don't think it needs to be the ridiculous seven hundred, eight hundred dollar top end. I've got clients that are working with Nutri Bullet, some that are working with um, blenders that are less um, efficient than the Nutri Bullet, but it still works. Um, but yeah, I think my favorite is probably the Nutri Bullet. <laughs> and do they commonly so. um, make up like a day's supply and then? 
um, use it over the day or and keep it in the fridge yeah. for 24 hours or something like that? Yeah, so it's very person dependent. Some people um, could make up about a litre and a half of the blend in the morning and then yeah. pop it in the fridge and that's pretty much what they're pulling out every other um, for, for each feed. It's really important to remember though that BTF cannot sit at room temperature for more than two hours. Mm. But I would say the same thing to a hard-boiled egg yeah. and I would say the same thing to a chicken. So, again, it's not BTF being difficult, it's food. Yeah, right? as you say, so, it's food hygiene. It's food hygiene, exactly. And then also not, thaw not thawing on a kitchen counter but thawing in a fridge. Mm. So all of that still applies. So people just – so if somebody is storing, yeah, you just got to give that additional kind of guidance around in a freezer it can sit for a month in a fridge it can sit for 24 hours and on a table counter it can sit for two hours um it's a really important screening question if you've got a client that wants to try btf or you want to try btf with someone make sure that they can tolerate a feed within two hours because that's how long it can hang or sit yeah um, if someone can't tolerate large volumes perhaps those on jejunal feeds um, might not be able to tolerate those higher volumes, then perhaps BTF might not be right for them at this instance. Nonetheless, Claire, my mentor from Canada, she actually has a blog post all about jejunal feeding and BTF. So she's an advocate that it can happen. It can be done. I personally haven't done it yet um, with someone with a jejunal tube, um, but just bear in mind that they need to be able to tolerate that feed within yeah. two hours. Yeah. Um, for that hygiene purpose. And do you ever need to, when we talk about the risks, which okay, are really more around just food hygiene and food handling, but yeah. other situations where um, you need to have waivers or disclaimers, like sometimes some of the care workers are a bit averse to risks if they're providing blended food rather than prepackaged? Yeah. Yeah, I've had to sort of come up with a bit of a certificate like a training certificate for a particular NDIS facility to say these carers have attended food safety training um, with me around the BTF. They've, so I've had to do that sort of stuff and sort of dish out those little certificates to say that, yes, they've attended the session with me. But in terms of actual people, I personally don't make them sign any waivers. Um, I can imagine that maybe perhaps bigger organisations that might choose to endorse BTF for their hen population Maybe they might have a few disclaimers that if your tube blocks, I've made you aware that if you don't put the feed to the right viscosity, it's at yeah. higher risk of blocking. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe, yeah. but yeah. I don't. Yeah. But, and yeah. do, do you face any issues when, if you've got someone at home quite stable on their BTF and then they require a hospital admission, um, are yes. there any barriers to when they go into hospital that they can or can't use their food? <laughs> It's a great question because one of my gentlemen, he literally, um, his wife had emailed and she said to me, if he ends up in hospital with pneumonia again, can we have an, a, a commercial BTF um, that I can take to hospital with me because I, I don't want to put up with the fight of, no, not giving home food through a tube, blah, blah. And, and so that's what we've done. I've told her to purchase um, X amount of boxes of a particular commercial blended tube feeding company. And whenever he gets admitted to hospital, she takes that with her. 
and they're fine and, with that. And, and that's what they're fine with. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, the hospital is fine with it because it's packaged, you know, industrially packaged. So from a sterilization perspective, it minimizes their chance of any issues happening. Yeah. And I, and I guess hospitals do have to be mindful of their fridge capacity if it's just Absolutely. a lot of fridge on the ward and they probably don't Absolutely. necessarily have space for, you know, Absolutely. all those sorts of things. And, and when BTF sits out, you know, if even for an hour, I mean, if you try making lentil soup, I love lentil soup. If lentil soup sits on the stove for like 20 minutes, it hardens. And then I've got to add a little bit more liquid to it to make it a bit more soupy. So what I'm saying is if someone takes their blended tube feeding to a hospital and the nurse isn't able yeah. to get to it at the exact time, it's going to harden and the nurse will have to thin it and it's, it's, it's too much. So I often say have a commercial blended tube feed ready and to go for when you get into hospital. On that sort of topic of having to um, dilute it down just to get the consistency right, if you have a client who might be losing weight um, on their BTF, mm. how do you manage boosting up the energy of it without you know, massively impacting on the volume? There's a few tips and tricks. Number one, I've used commercial formula. So actually mixing commercial formula in with the BTF um, to sort of, sort of boost up the calories. There's things like tahini, creams, plant milks, nut seeds, um, nuts and seed butters are also great, really high calorie in, in a tablespoon or, or two. You can get a decent amount of, um, you know, decent amount of calories into somebody. Um, I've used protein powders calorie powders can also work so so there's ways around it a bit more of a starchy vegetables that are a bit more calorie dense um there's definitely ways around it but i'm lucky because the clientele i'm working with don't often have lots of allergy issues mm. so i can i can imagine if you were speaking to a pediatric dietitian that does blender tube feeding she might have much better tips and tricks on getting away with with that in the context of an allergy and an intolerance. Um, for my clients, it's often out of choice that they're doing BTF. So they're often happy to add 200 mil of a commercial formula. Yes. Yeah. Um, to, to boost up the calories while until they gain the regain the weight and then we can go back to blender tube feeding. Yeah. So I am dealing with a different I don't know if it's an easier group, but a, di yeah, a group with different, different populations. Yeah, so and I've come. Do you, um, are there any foods that you just say, like, steer clear of it? They just don't work um, in a blenderized diet. Like, they always cause blockages or something. Uh, I'm not quite sure, but, or can they pretty much everything be blended? You know what? I'm, I'm trying, I'm drawing on the experiences of my clients. Anything that you then run through a spatula and a mesh strainer right. <laughs> should be fine. Yeah. Um, so part of the equipment that you need, I always say a spatula and a good mesh strainer. Cause no matter how good your, 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 your blender is, um, strawberries, uh, celery, a little bit more stringy, seedy vegetables and fruits might need a spatula and a mesh strainer before you run it through, the, before you put it through the feeding tube. So you're um, really looking for lump-free, like any yeah, kind of, absolute, Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You're looking for absolute lump-free. Mm. And are there any situations where um, you've had patients who have given it a go and just it hasn't worked for them, like it's just 
you know, they go off it. I mean, I, I know you said that sometimes they might go with a combination of commercial versus and as blended yeah. sometimes depending on convenience. So there are any that just it really hasn't worked or they haven't tolerated it? I'm yet to experience that, but I don't think that's because blended chew feeding is the magic bullet of everything. I think it's just because I don't have those large patient numbers mm. on blended tube feeding yet for me to experience that yeah. in so I'm yet to have that experience. Um, it's been fairly positive, well, very positive for everyone that I've looked after on it. But again, we're, we're yet to see those people come through and trust us as clinicians to support them. A lot yeah. of people are still out there doing it without any dietetic support and think they don't need us because understandably we've been not supportive yeah, not for the last decade. Yeah. Yeah. And anecdotally, when I read some of the literature around it or even some of the sort of um, tube feeding Facebook groups and those sorts of things, yeah. um, anecdotally, you see quite a few reports, and admittedly it's probably more in kids, but that actually they tolerate blended tube feeds much better than yeah. they have ever tolerated the commercial ones. Again, yeah. I know it's anecdotal, but do you see that, that... You know, they just generally have less issues with it in terms of tolerance. I, I definitely see it in the pediatric BTF literature. Yes. Um, I definitely read of quite because majority of the systematic literature reviews in the blended tube feeding space are done in the pediatric mm. population. That's why mine is in the adult. Um, but yeah, those that I've read in the pediatric population are almost very consistently saying improved GI symptoms, improved, you know, bowel consistency, improved um, abdominal distension or whatever. So I have seen it in the literature. Um, from a personal perspective with my clients, I've seen it improve their outlook on life. So kind of like I, I could actually go to a family dinner and have what everybody else is having. So I've seen it. I've seen that in action. In terms of seeing magical medical improvements, no, because most of my clients are embracing BTF for personal reasons. Yes. Um, yeah. And that's special reason. Yeah. So yeah. I'm yet to have that big success story. But, um, but I do want to make it really clear that I, I don't think dietitians need to be pure blender tube feeding supporters or pure conventional formula supporters. We need to be unbiased and supportive of pro-choice and option. That's it. So there's not, it's not, we're not saying one is better than the other. We're saying one can potentially make people a little bit happier. And that could be a conventional formula as well. I mean, like, you know, if I ever ended up on a feeding tube, to tell you the truth, probably for convenience reasons, I'll just go, give me the conventional. Yes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I don't have time. I don't have time. <laughs> um, um, but then I'd also miss my cultural foods that mum's mm. mum makes, so I'd probably embrace That's a bit of a combination. Them. Yeah, <laughs> but and I think, but it's. I feel like I come back to this in so many of these podcast discussions where. If you're really talking about client-centered care, it doesn't matter if you're talking about plant-based versus meat-based or weight loss strategies, whether it's haze versus some kind of more yeah. uh, stricter sort of dietary regime, whatever. Dietitians are really skilled or should be skilled at individualizing that care. And, yeah. and if, if the your client has an idea of what they want to do, then we have the knowledge and the skills to be able to guide them the best way possible absolutely um, and without making judgment absolutely and patient-centered care is 
not the highest um, evidence rating RCT and systematic mm. literature review guiding your practice. Mm. Patient-centered yeah. care is listening to the person, to, to your patient, and exactly what you said, personalizing what they want and making it, helping them do it in a safe and risk-free and not most nourishing way. And just out of interest, Lena, um, with your PhD, uh, I know that you're doing yeah. some literature reviews and some surveys, um, I think, of um, people's experiences of home nutrition. Are you actually, do you have a research project in mind actually addressing blended tube feeds? So my systematic literature review is fully targeting blended tube feeds, whether I then follow it with an actual study where we're actually doing, mm. um, I'm, I'll put a pin on that. We're exploring. Yeah. <laughs> Wait for the results of your review. <laughs> yeah. And you can, but also you can imagine interventional studies are, are pretty yeah. difficult to get yeah. through ethics, especially in a short PhD timeframe, but yeah. I'd love to, whether it's a postdoc dream, I think it would, it's definitely achievable. Yeah, yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah. So you mentioned um, a few resources that dietitians can access if they want some help um, yep. in helping yep. their clients navigate this. Um, yep. Some of the Canadian resources, some of the um, international or the national guidelines, OSPEN, et cetera, resources. Yep. So um, we'll put uh, all of those links in our yes. show notes as well as um, a link to your Tube Dietitian website so people can get your infographics that you love so much. Yeah. Um, yeah. And um, <laughs> I understand there's another one coming, which hopefully by the time we um, publish this podcast will be freely available to everyone, which are sort of Absolutely. the top tips and tricks. So I guess just in closing, are there any other sort of key points you want to make about um, blended tube feeds? Um no, I think it's great that we're talking about it on a brilliant platform like Dietitian Connection. I think Aussie dietitians, we are intelligent. We are amazing. We have such a strong unity together. And I think we need to yeah, take the fear out of feeding tubes and take the fear out of blended tube feeding. Yeah, and, <laughs> and I think and it's, to do yeah. it's exciting just to be able to, to guide our clients through the yeah. journey um and actually feel like yeah. you're of supporting real food. them yeah yeah hallelujah to yeah. real food hey <laughs> absolutely <laughs> lena thank you so much for spending the time with us this afternoon again you, as always it was lovely to talk to you thank you so much jane Have a to get all of the links and resources we discussed in this episode you can go to dietitianconnection.com slash podcasts. And if you'd like to support the Dietitian Connection podcast, please leave a review and a rating on the Apple Podcasts app. Tell us what you thought of this episode, what you learnt, and share your guest requests for us to consider for future episodes. We value hearing from you, and we really appreciate your feedback. So please, please hit that review button.